friends, and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and today we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and leave you with a deep sense of dissatisfaction because we in no way are telling you how to live your lives. Andy, how are you this morning? I'm doing peachy, um, but something that strikes me, just to dive right into it. Mm-hmm. A few episodes ago, I talked about how much I hate the writer's strike. Yeah. And uh, to be clear, you hate... The circumstances leading to the writer's strike, you we yes. we we are supportive of the writer's strike here on this show. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, we talked about that in great detail, and then we recorded another episode, and then you went on vacation to Columbia, and yeah. we've taken like a solid month, month and a half. It's been like two or three months since I talked about how much I hate. Uh, the continual circumstances that leads to writer strikes mm-hmm. and shit's only gotten worse and yep. more. Yep. Yep. So we're, I, I, I honestly don't know if, if by the next time we record and it's my hate, the strike's still going on. I might dive into specifically what I hate about this writer strike oh, even sure. more as like a, a fucking follow up. Oh, yeah. But in the meantime, studios are just nakedly, mustache-twirlingly evil. And, like, the Actors Guild has gotten involved. Yeah. And it's it's a whole giant mess. Yeah, the Actors Guild has now gone on strike. Uh, among outright things that they are just discussing in these negotiations, we also talked about AI art some time ago, there is... Um, something that the studios are wanting to do uh for those of you who don't know in the movie industry specifically in the acting industry one of the breakout ways for people to actually get into the union and actually have something resembling a career is you start off as a background actor and you know you'll do and and this is these are the people who are in the bar during the episode of how i met your mother doing stuff in the background or they're standing behind Chris Evans and all the other Avengers and they're wearing like soldier gear as they're about like the, the Dora Milaje gear or um, whatever else they're wearing because they're going to be part of this giant battle thing. Like that's those background actors, some of whom maybe get the occasional line, some of whom don't. That's a lot of who we're dealing with here. The studios have outright said that what they want to do with these actors, those actors typically show up, they get a day rate. Maybe 150 bucks, might be a little bit more, depending on what exactly is involved. Yeah. Um, but they want to, instead of hiring those people to come every day of the shoot for a month or a couple of weeks or however long it takes to shoot the thing, they want them to show up for one day, scan them, and then own their likeness in perpetuity to use as background in AI-generated formats. Forever. Forever. With no uh, right... No uh, residual going to said actor. And, like, when you think about something like that, it's, it's, imagine you are trying to make a living as an actor, and what happens is you can go work for each of those studios once. Then they own your likeness, and they never have a reason to hire you again. And they never have a reason to create a breakout character that you audition for because we're just going to AI generate de-aged Carrie Fishers and Mark Hamill's and Harrison Ford's. I think about, um, you know, you've seen Friends. Obviously, there's the character of Gunther. 
The sure. the bleach haired uh, dude who works at Central Perk who never has any episodes about him, but he has a ton of just really good scenes. There's a running gag that he's secretly in love with Rachel. The actor who plays Gunther became Gunther because he was a background actor who showed up and they were like, hey, any of you who are background actors, do any of you know how to work a cappuccino machine? Because they needed someone to work behind the bar yeah. and actually like work the cappuccino machine in a reasonably like realistic way. And that actor had worked in a coffee shop before and was like, I do. And because he showed up to work as a background actor like two dozen other people and happened to be useful to them in a particular way, that man still gets residuals on Friends episodes. Does he have an incredible acting career? No. But, like, he, he, he can now make a living just off of the fact that he showed up to these casting calls. That does happen. And that's a fantastic example because that dude's financial stability is probably the high watermark. Because ever since then, it's only gotten worse and worse and less and less. And culturally, we're careening. We're a flaming school bus careening down a canyon side right well, now. Well, um, okay, so there's a podcaster I listen to named Miles Gray. He's on Daily Zeitgeist. He's, uh, he's on 420 Day Fiance, a few different things. But he tells a story about how his uh, grandparents, after they retired, they lived in Hollywood. Mm. Um, but after his grandparents retired, they started just for fun being background actors and sure. like they're the old black couple that you see in the background in one scene in deep impact they're the old black couple that's in the background scene in jerry Maguire. like they just did this and you know from the way he talked about it, he's like you know they didn't need to make a living they were doing it for fun but you know if they were serious about it if they did it as like a daily thing they could have made a living at doing it like that's what it paid they want to take that away because it's just kind of a little cheaper. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, The Flash released and is the biggest bomb in WB history mm -hmm. in the uh, 100 year plus like existence of Warner Brothers, the studio. They have never lost more money than they lost on The Fucking Flash, a movie that anybody would have a brain cell would have told them not to make. And if like... It, 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 we've talked about so many things on the show. If David Zaslav had not gutted HBO Max and not canceled a bunch of projects for tax write-offs, and if the studios had just immediately, like before it was even a question, decided to pay actors and writers what the guilds are asking for, if both of those things had happened, the companies would have not lost as much money paying for these things, producing these projects, not getting the tax write-offs, as they just lost on a single fucking movie they never should have made. I can't help but think about something. Um, okay, so this is a little bit of inside baseball into, you know, my day-to-day -day job. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I project manage a program for a housing authority. One tiny piece of my job is that um, we're, we, we have people administering surveys to these low-income residents and to thank people for doing those surveys and, you know, thank them for their time. You know, some of them are coming into the office, taking time out of the day for a phone call. We send them a $25 Visa gift card. Mm -hmm. Part of my job is I manage those gift cards. I order them from our accounting department. I keep track of them. I give them out to the folks giving the surveys and keep track of who gets what. 
if I lost a box of those gift cards, I'm not going to say I would be fired, but like I would, I would be in so much trouble professionally if I lost a box of those gift cards. It'd be an audit. A box of those gift cards would be probably about $2,000, maybe $2,500. I think it might be a hundred to a box. Sure. If I lost $2,500, I would very likely be completely out of my job. How much money did David Zaslav lose on The Flash? It, at, at last count, $200 million. If I lost $2,000, <laughs> I'd be out of a job. He lost $200 million. He's going to still get a bonus at the end of the year. <sighs> Once again, school bus on fire, careening off cliff. And here we are. Don't cross picket lines. Uh, you can still absolutely stream your favorite stuff. Andy and I were talking about this earlier. Um, with the writer strike going and the lack and the total just drop in production, yeah. now might be a good time to go through backlogs. This uh, is the perfect time to go through a backlog. I was saying this might be the thing that gets me to finally watch a Marvel IP show. Yeah. Now, uh, it's funny, someone asked Neil Gaiman about this online, and, and it's gone kind of viral, his response. Someone asked him, is it crossing a picket line to watch older shows? And Neil Gaiman straight up said, no, that's not crossing a picket line at all. That's actually supporting because that creates, that pays residuals to those creators, and those unionized creators will be paying into the strike fund. Yeah. Yes, it does kind of help the studio in a way, but... Ultimately, that's not crossing a picket line. I don't necessarily know if I would agree it's not crossing the picket line if you continue to watch the bullshit new stuff because they're investing hella into right. revitalizing reality TV and investing in AI-generated scripts. Don't watch those things. Yeah. I don't know if they qualify as crossing a picket line because you are still supporting a lot of other people, but... Don't support those things and support the stuff that's like currently on your streamers. Go into your backlogs. You and I are rewatching The Wire. Um, yeah. Yeah. Support that shit. And listen to our podcast. <laughs> we are not affiliated with any guilds, though we would be if asked. So. Yeah, no. I, I would unionize, but then I'd have to like picket it myself. So. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship, everybody. Uh, after a little bit of a douchebag buffer, sometimes it's uh, what's going on with us, sometimes it's what's on our minds, sometimes it's, as it was here, an update on a previous topic. We like to dive into our uh, topics for the episode. Uh, just so you know, with our format change, we now do a love and then a hate on one episode, and then on the following episode, we do uh, a bunch of questions, a bunch of relationship questions. You might notice this is episode 105. It ends in a five. We normally do a triple on this one. That seems kind of weird and pointless right now, so we're going to figure out what the fuck we're going to do with any of that. Yeah. But for right now, Andy, you have the love, and I'm kind of excited about this one. It's kind of delightful. It is kind of delightful. This one hit me and um, just feels like the kind of... It feels like one of our classic, oh, this is like an obvious thing to talk about, but doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, I would like to talk about my love about visual encyclopedias. And I 
I will say, you you told me about this, and before anything, you were like, hey, I want to talk about this, but I don't actually know what to call it. Yeah. And I didn't really have a good idea for it. Um, well, and, and I'm going to get hyper-specific into one specific publishing brand. Um, so maybe this is... Maybe this is a love on visual encyclopedias. Maybe this is a love on DK publishing. The first one sounds better to me, so I'm going to go with it. Eh, all right, go for it. Uh, but the first thing I want to do is ask you, Alex, a question that I'm sure I know the answer to. But did you ever go to the Scholastic Book Fair? Oh my as god, a kid? I loved the Scholastic Book Fair. I was always jealous of those kids whose parents like bought them like a hundred dollars worth of shit at the Scholastic Book Fair. I I barely ever asked my parents for shit on it. Sure. So I would I get the catalog and I try and mark out something like I try to keep it under like twenty dollars and I'd ask my parents for some of those things. Yeah. Um, but I love just going like it was an event. Yeah. In the second grade, when you walk into the library and it's Scholastic Book Fair Day, and all of the regular books are like you can't even get to them because there's just cases upon cases of books for sale, and it's all Scholastic shit. And in retrospect, it's also probably not the most ethical thing because one publishing company is taking over a school library, but also it's books, so. It was exciting and awesome. I, I agree with you. Like, Scholastic Book Fair Day was, like, right behind Field Day and, like, Field Trip to the Museum Day as, yeah. like, the hot shit exciting moment of, of our elementary school. And I don't even know if they still happen, but I think they must. I think they still happen. Yeah. I feel like I remember somebody's kid, like... Somebody talking about their kid like being super excited for the Scholastic Book Fair and the kid was like seven. So I yeah. think they still happen. And that was your chance to go and get the Boxcar Kids and Animorphs and Captain Underpants and all manner of books. And there was always one specific kind that I gravitated to. Okay. And that was the Visual Encyclopedia. Okay. These are books that like... The only way I can think to describe it is in a pre-Wikia, pre-really connected to the internet childhood age, which we're in that age range where we still understand what that means. Mm -hmm. Any Gen Z listeners are going to be like, what was that like, Grandpa? Um, you, you had only a few different options to dive into a niche, nerdy, intellectual property. Yeah. Your Batman, your X-Men, your Star Wars. On a playground level, one of the ways you could kind of tell the extent of a nerddom, because, because you'd run into people who knew just random-ass lore and shit yeah. from different like you would meet the star trek kid me <laughs> who well here's the point you would meet the star trek kid who knew like the names of the background characters who were never called out by name yeah and you'd sit here and be like did you just wait to read the credits and then figure out who was where which was a silly thing because I was someone who dove into Star Wars visual encyclopedias, which is how I knew the names of various random background characters and ships in the galactic fleet, as well as the Empire and all of that. Exactly. So you had a couple of different options. You either had like access to the material. You either had the books and comic books and the movies 
and were able to like navigate and just naturally absorb this wealth of information you encountered in the wild, which really always kind of depended on how expansive your local public library backslash video rental stores were. Sure. Or you stumbled across a visual encyclopedia. Yeah. This was like wiki for a pre-wiki age. This yeah. was a book that was blank. The Batman one, the X-Men one, three different Star Wars ones, one for the movies, one for the ships, and one for, like, what's a Jedi? Oh, I remember there was, like, okay, there was one that was just all the weapons. Yes. So it was, like, the Star Stormtrooper blaster rifles and Han Solo's pistol and different lightsabers. There was one that was all the ships and explain and and vehicles and all of that shit. There was one that was all the animals. Yes. Where you learn about like dewback lizards and Ewoks and it was and and then there were way more than that, but like there, there were way more than that. It wasn't just hyper nerdy shit. This was for like history stuff and and if sure. you didn't have zoo books, there were different animal ones. That's there were true. there were different ones for different countries. Yeah. And so you had this book that was just like basically a, a bound Wikipedia article just filled to the brim with pictures of, of what it is and little descriptions and everything. And they look like coffee table books. They absolutely do. So there is one sitting right next to us as we record, and it is the X-Men Ultimate Guide, um, updated edition. Um, and the, it is it is much larger than a regular book. It's it's the kind of thin, large, like it is a giant statement piece of an object. Can I just describe, and this is something that'll really only mean something to someone who is at least a little bit of an X-Men or a comic books fan. On the cover of the X-Men, The Ultimate Guide, you have Wolverine... Like, comic book Wolverine in his ultimate X-Men outfit. So, yes, that is the full black leather suit with, like, the really bad 90s X's logos. Yeah. Then in the bottom corner, there's a little circle, and it has Halle Berry's Storm from, I believe, X2. Maybe the first X-Men movie from 2000. One of those two. Yeah. It's definitely not X3. Yeah. Like, and it's just Halle Berry there. And those are your two visual markers, aside from the giant X-Men logo at the top, and a little thing in the corner that has, with a forward by Stan Lee, and a print of Stan Lee's signature that is shitty. Like, the print is shitty because the marker's not even, like, the yeah. marker looks a little faded. It looks pre-faded. It's bad. And so, spoiler alert... I, this book is not the exact book I had, but I had a copy of this book when I was a eight, nine, ten year old yeah. that I just would stare at for days on end. And part of the thing that inspired my love is in talking about this, somebody very dear, a very dear friend got me and hunted down and found this thing. Cause I didn't even remember what this was fucking called found the X-Men Ultimate Guide and gave it to me as a gift and reignited this blaze of nostalgia in my mind. Stop me if I'm, like, blowing your mind about this, but, like, that friend who was hunting around for this found it on eBay in, like, ten minutes. Well, yes, because I, I didn't know what to look for. <laughs> and I just kind of described it, and they very brilliantly were like thing that does this on Google and found it. And yeah. I was overjoyed. It was just on eBay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> And so this book is published and was published back in like 2003 or something 
by Doring Kinsardly Limited, also known as DK Publishing. And so these were one of the companies that partnered with Scholastic and would like just pump their product into the Scholastic Book Fair. And they kind of are like the company that would do the visual encyclopedias when we were kids. Yeah. Well, it's like I'm looking at their website right now and it's it's fascinating because, you know, they got different categories. They've got like children's travel education pop culture science and nature history i mean i click on the children's one and it's fascinating the first two are a a book for the ninjago secret world of the ninja lego ninja universe and then next to that is children's book of music and i'm looking at the cover and i'm sitting here like okay that's a picture of a les paul guitar that's a picture of Billie Holiday. That's a picture of a trumpet. That's a boombox. It's just like, okay, is this a visual encyclopedia of just like popular music? And, and maybe, I don't know, like this company still exists and is still making these books to this day, which makes my my heart very happy. Um, but it's, I, I don't know, because this to me is something of a bygone era. Um, just a blurb about the company really quick. They were created back in 1973. They're a British-based publishing company, if the name Dorling Kinserly didn't give that away. Dorling Kinserly Limited sounds like a front in a Bond film. Absolutely, it does. Um, and just since the 70s, they, they make a bunch of different books, but they are most well-known for a series called Eyewitness Guides, which I swear to God, like these are the ones where it's like, Eyewitness Guide of Portugal, Eyewitness Guide of of Rome, Eyewitness Guide of Ancient Japanese Weaponry. And I swear to God, there used to be like a PBS VHS tape children's docuseries that did the same exact thing. I think was the same company, but I couldn't find anything about it. And they still make this stuff, but... It is so interesting to me because, like, in the age we currently live in, in the internet age, this feels redundant, uh, even for a little kid. You know, I see that, and, and I see where you're coming from on that, but, okay, so I just clicked over on this website um, to the science and nature section, right? And I think about, I, I look at this. Uh, one of the first things is the dog encyclopedia, mm. which is dope. Like, I, I think that's just cool. <laughs> um, you know, they've got, okay, I look here, they've got one called Good News Planet Earth. What's being done to save our world and what you can do too with Sam Bentley. Sam Bentley is, uh, <laughs> it's funny because this thing bills him as a climate activist. And I think that's fair. But Sam Bentley's a TikTok guy. Yeah. Sam Bentley does like science videos on TikTok. And, and they're cool videos. They're very accessible. You don't need more than like maybe a middle school science background to understand how he relays things. Really cool dude. But he's got one of these books that he apparently wrote. But then there's one on like classic cars. There's one on horse riding. Um, there's really interesting ones like how not to get eaten, which looks like 
It's about different kinds of predators in the animal kingdom. And I'm like, I used to see these books in Barnes & Noble when I was a kid. Yeah. You talk about the redundancy of them. And I'm not going to argue that I'm pretty sure their market share fell hugely with the advent of Wikipedia and online resources. Yeah. That said, and maybe I'm getting ahead of, my, ahead of you or your notes, but I think about something like this and... You know, my uh, my nieces or nephews know how to work an iPad just fine. Mm. But I don't think my nieces and nephews are going to sit have the patience to sit there and read an article about, like, okay, my nephew's really into cars. His dad's a car guy, and he's, like, filtered that down. I don't think my nephew's going to sit there and read, like, a Wikipedia entry on some fucking car. But I think if I got him some fucking book with really dope pictures of some fucking cars... He might be like, this is some fucking awesome. <laughs> That's a quote. That's exactly what my nephew I, would say. I'm, picture, some fucking I'm awesome. picturing you're like, if I don't even think he's two years old nephew saying this, and that delights me. My, my oh, my three year old younger nephew. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it's it's there's a there's a, there's a thing about the focus of it, and for a lot of kids, that tangibility of like holding a book, especially if that book is really well illustrated and it's cool, like. I'm, I'm just opening up this X-Men book, and the first thing I see is other subjects of the Weapon X project. We're already in stuff that's completely inaccessible to non-comic book fans. Luckily, right next to it is a picture of Deadpool. <laughs> and this is Rob Liefeld Deadpool. The, the feet look horrible, and he's way too muscular. But I look at that, and that is visually striking for a kid. Fair. And, and so I will say, like, I, I am delighted to be proven wrong to realize that there is still a market for this such a thing. To, to get to your point specifically, I think I have this brain rot of specifically for, like, the, the nerdy shit, the IPs. I think about how, like, you can go to a specific wiki for blank. Like, yeah. more than just Wikipedia's Batman page, there is a Batman Wikipedia that is nothing but Batman shit in Wikipedia, yes. and X-Men shit, and Star Wars shit, and Star Trek shit, yes. and Superman shit. And there is a specific website that has every piece of information from all of these stuff, and pictures, and, and tries to do this. And I guess I kind of have this pre-assumed notion that, like, that was just... The thing you did, because this is th this book is clearly the, like, precursor for such a thing. Yeah. But I am delighted to learn that, no, they still make these books. They still make the Star Wars guide. Yeah. The, the most recent thing I see on here um, that is specifically, like, nerdy related, there is a big book of DC Pride, which, like, presumably goes into depth of all of the... Uh, LGBTQ plus <laughs> DC characters, of which there are a fucking lot. Oh, sure, yeah. There is a 2022 Batman Ultimate Guide that they got Tom King to work on. Okay. And I want that now. I want that my own <laughs> No, and, and I think about that, and... Okay, I'm going to tell this story. Do you remember the complete Pokemon handbook? Yes. Okay. So this had two editions. I remember this because Nick had one. My best friend Nick had one, and I had the later one. And I was really excited about it because the later one had entries on Mew and Togepi. The, the original one was the first 150 Pokemon, and the next one had Mew and Togepi entries. Sure. And, like, 
I memorized this goddamn book. This book was the reason why I could tell you that, like, the uh, and a lot of it's fallen out of my head, but I could tell you, like, the entire move set for fucking Seal and Dugong. Sure. In, in the original, like, in, in the original Pokemon. And I had memorized all of these, like, facts about them. Something I did that I think, I, 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 I'm curious if you ever did this. I knew kids who did this. I did this. Did you ever take, like, notebook paper? Put it on top of the pictures in the visual encyclopedia and trace them. Oh, I'm sure I had to have, yeah. I did that with like all the Pokemon. Like all of them. I loved doing that. Don't ask me why. I no. never learned to draw. But like now, now, okay. I have access to Bulbapedia. Sure. Which is the Pokemon wiki. And if you've never been on Bulbapedia and you're even remotely a Pokemon fan, it is overwhelming. The extensiveness of it. Like, you and I watch Nuzlocke videos occasionally. And for people who don't know, Nuzlocke's are a very particular way of playing Pokemon games. That's a future topic. All right. That's a very particular way of playing Pokemon games to make them very challenging. And there are literally a small but active group of YouTubers who, and Twitch streamers who make a living doing poke, streams of Pokemon Nuzlocke's. Yeah. But if you wanted to do a Nuzlocke, Bulbapedia is essential. Because it explains everything, it, it teaches you moveset stuff, it divides things up per game. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's extensive as hell. And I don't think, as a kid, I could ever have gotten into something like that. It would have been too overwhelming. But the Pokemon Handbook, which was like 250, 300 pages of just Pokemon write-ups, none of which were great. Like, they weren't extensive or anything, but... They tied into what I cared about, and I loved that book. And that, yeah, that is, like, a remarkably salient point. I think that is, like, that's something I didn't consider when I kind of had my mind blown that there was still an active market for this kind of content. To speak specifically about the X-Men Guide and my childhood with it, I would just go through this book over and over and over again and I would pour over it. And like, I watched the X-Men animated series. Yeah. I watched X-Men Evolution. I, I had X-Men comic books. But like, this was the, the thing I read that really explained to me in detail what the Sentinels whole deal was. And there's a, a two-page spread that lists out the entire Dark Phoenix saga. Jesus. I never I never read the Dark Phoenix saga as a kid. I, I never, like, saw that at my library and, re and read it. Probably better for me. No, you just saw 19 adaptations of it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I could, like, I could read this and have, like, an understanding, albeit a childlike understanding, of, of what was going on. And to pour over this book and I absolutely had the Batman one and I did that as well. And my brother had all the star Wars ones and you could just pour over these. And you mentioned this too. You could pour over these illustrations and it really captures the information and, and, and the like imagination possible with such a thing. I'm looking at the one for Rachel gray, which again is like a character that, Ask a hundred people who say they've heard of the X-Men and maybe ten of them will say they know who the fuck Rachel Gray is. Nerd cred. 
<laughs> and there are like old pictures clearly from her first appearance in like the 70s and 80s. And then there's this giant picture that looks like it was drawn in fucking 2002 that is this really cool, interesting picture of her on fire using her Phoenix powers. And it's like, this is so cool. This gives such an understanding of, of the thing. I don't think I would be the, the giant x-men fan that i am without this book and my brother obsessed with star wars for the longest time i think in part because he had the movies and we had every star wars lego kit that came out but also he had the book that showed you a a breakdown schematic of how a y-wing works and how the bombay doors work and all that kind of shit yep and they still make it and that makes me really happy yeah i think about these kind of visual guides and again in a big way it just it focuses shit yeah and and it's perfect for kids because of the visual aspect, because of the portability aspect, because while kids are computer savvy in a way that took us a long time to learn, it doesn't change the fact that focus is a really tricky thing. Sure. Like when you have all of the information, you use not 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 nearly as much of it. You know, I um Every time I have a, like, random obsession. Okay, this, I, I can talk about this from, like, a chess perspective. Because when I started learning about chess theory, or music theory, when I started learning that, I could sit here and I can go on the internet and learn everything I ever wanted to know about chess, about music theory, about comic books, about weightlifting. Yeah. There's so much information online for all of those things. But do you know where I get most of my info? I get them out of either books or something more curated. Sure. So I might look up a chess course that's available on LiChess. Or I might look up a, a, a playlist of videos that a YouTuber I like came up with for... Um, for understanding certain comic book stuff. Yeah. Um, I read actual training books for weightlifting because it's organized and it's not a mishmash because when it's a mishmash, you, you don't really get anything from it. You don't really understand it well. I think if you've got a kid who expresses an interest, again, my nephew likes cars. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got a kid who's really into a particular, like, niche pop, pop culture yeah. niche yeah. or science niche or something like yeah. that, like getting up, my nephew's also really into animals. I was really into birds as a kid. Well, I didn't know that. Like, I loved birds and I love, and specifically, I loved birds of prey. Sure. Let's say I'm named five famous people and I'll name five birds. I'll name a hundred birds. Nobody wants your birds, Please. <laughs> and I don't think I ever had like, a, I checked out from the library plenty of books about birds. Yeah. I don't know that I would have just sat there. Like, trust me, I have read the Wikipedia articles on several different owls. 
Shut up. I'm learning so much about you. But like, I I, I I read those Wikipedia articles. I remember we had an Encarta Encyclopedia CD-ROM when I was a kid. Best believe I read up on fucking hawks and falcons. Like, it was a thing. But these kinds of visual encyclopedias, these are the kind of things you return to. And, and yeah. you know, I'm a big believer that repetition legitimizes. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're returning to these things, like there's a reason why I still have so much Pokemon info and Star Wars info memorized because I returned to those books constantly, reread them over and over and over again. And you can reread, like you have this open on uh, an article for Mr. Sinister, who's one of the best X-Men villains. And if you read this, you know, 10 times, 20 times, the way a child would read it, that child would learn everything about Mr. Sinister that was available in 2000 when this fucking thing came out. Available in this book that is heavily censored, I will say, just, oh, to, sure. just, just to be real and upfront about it. There's so much stuff that, like, the really, like, sexual and nightmarish and more adult things in X-Men were completely glossed over in this book hilariously. And yet we but, still have a picture of the Goblin Queen dressed in <laughs> Goblin Queen attire. And if you don't know what that means, Google the Goblin Queen Marvel and you'll see what we mean. Yeah, the most salacious thing a 10-year-old could get his hands on that wasn't like boobies in a National Geographic. Sure. Um, but yes, you, you could pour over this and you best believe I did and it created this bedrock of information so that like years later when I randomly see Dazzler in a comic book, I'm like, oh, I know who Dazzler is. So this this is really wonderful and special to get off the X-Men one. Like I, I remember the Batman one um, talked about like there's an entire family of Clayface characters and I didn't know that because I never read all of the Batman stories that had Clayface, but I could read that book and be like, oh, there's like four different Clayfaces running around. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Um, this is such a bedrock. This is a, I, I feel like a foundational type of thing to help a, not even a young person, but 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 directed towards young people, um, learn about a thing. You know, you can give your kid the one on... Uh, Tokyo and they learn everything about Tokyo that there is to know at time of publishing and it's it's really wonderful to me I was really delighted to rediscover and remember that this kind of thing existed and really delighted to learn that it is persisted to exist uh, really hilariously DK Publishing went into debt in 1999 because they created too many Star Wars books <laughs> And they were unable to move all of the product, and so they went into debt, which, thinking about how that's right before The Phantom Menace came out, that's actually kind of really funny to me, because I'm imagining, what the fuck does too many Star Wars books look like in that moment of time? I mean, there's only so much money some kids can spend. And... Yeah. So they got bought by Penguin, um, and as far as I know, Penguin Publishing is still around. Yeah. And so now I'm it's happy. Penguin Random House, right? Um, I'm I'm just happy that this still exists, and DK Publishing is very brilliantly partnering with TikTokers. You mentioned the Science Guy. Uh, just taking a glance, I see two different cookbooks mm -hmm. that have uh, TikTokers that I recognize on the cover. 
One is like this guy who makes fast food, but he makes it homemade and he makes it better. The other is the guy who makes like pies from 1937 and, and does a period accurate recipe. I'm, I'm happy that these exist and are thriving and continuing to do a thing. And so listeners, if you have some book in the back of your mind that this has ignited your remembrance of, or if you just want to take a look and see like what visual encyclopedias are around, because I guarantee you there's probably one that would appeal to you. Yeah. I hope this has been helpful, and I hope that you can go off and, and find some corporeal, tactile literature enjoyment from our discussion on this. Yeah. I think my last word on it, and I mentioned this to you earlier, there there is this idea that this might be an outmoded thing, but I think of it like vinyl for kids. Sure. Like... I love I love streaming my music. I love the variety it gives me. I get to discover new stuff. I don't have the time and the money to go to a record store the way that you know people used to back in the day. But I also love skimming for old used vinyl. I love, and it's not that it's higher quality. I actually think that's bullshit. I don't think vinyl is a higher quality. I think it's an actively lower quality. And the fact that you can only play a vinyl record maybe 50 times before it starts to degrade, like, there's, there's, a, there's a thing to that. But also, I love holding this giant piece of cardboard. I love reading, I read liner notes. I love reading lyrics as printed on vinyl. And I take those as canon. Like, that's, that's a thing for me. So I view this in a big, bad way. Very, like, it's not that it has to replace those digital encyclopedias, those wikis. Sure. Um, and it's not even necessary that they have to be for children. Some of these would make dope coffee table books. Yeah. I'm looking at one right here that's uh, the book of mythical beasts and magical creatures. And, like, for the aesthetic that Stephanie and I have in our apartment, that would make a dope coffee table book. Sure. Like, I, I think, don't be scared to explore shit like this. It's aesthetically cool, and I'm the least aesthetically minded person there is. But it's aesthetically cool. It's fun. It's got kind of a focus to it. It's very simple and easy. You can return to it a lot. And it's tactile. You're right. Like, think of it a lot like vinyl. You can decorate with it. You can observe it. And you can give it to kids. And if they flip through it once, no big deal. They're not. Some of them are not that expensive. If they love them and fall in love with them, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. A wonderful point. And I, I like that comparison very, very much. Yeah. For my topic this episode, this is a very easy intro, dear boy. I just want you to tell me in, you know, 60 seconds or fewer, I can time you, everything you know or you think you know about BMI. So BMI stands for Body Mass Index, and it is, I mean, it is the, like, metric by which myself and everybody over the age of, like, 11 has been told every time they have a physical fitness evaluation or go to the doctor and, and, and go through all that, are told that they are supposed to fit into a certain number on this index based off of their height and age that means you are healthy. And if you are above that number, it means you are like clinically overweight or underweight if you don't hit that number or or whatever and it is supposed to be like the metric by which you can measure your health 
from a a um, a weight and and fat to muscle ratio perspective. Okay. You are pretty close. You also you also were just about exactly sixty seconds. So. Well, yes. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. I I appreciate that. Um, I'm not gonna lie. Doing a little bit of research about this, I some of this research I already knew just because I follow fitness spheres and research for that. Um, some of it uh, I learned a little bit more, and you might be surprised to learn racism and capitalism feature in highly on the story of BMI. Mild shock. Yes. Um, but I appreciate that. I think your explanation there is roughly the understanding that most of us have I think so. when it comes to BMI. Yeah. And I'm about to hopefully make you very angry. Well, so spoiler alert, I already know BMI is fucking bullshit, but I don't want to take your thunder here. No, so. that's fine. You could have said it was bullshit. We're going to say this up front. BMI is bullshit. All I'm going to do right here is give you a few of the reasons why. Oh, just God, just a few. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. The BMI, or as you stated, the body mass index, is a value number derived from a person's height and weight typically used to categorize individuals as underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at a lot of the literature on like longevity, a long-standing statement is that these categories exist on a J-curve when you're talking about mortality. So if you are underweight, your mortality rate is higher. Mm. Um, if you are normal or even overweight, like a little overweight, your mortality rate is pretty okay. Um, there's actually some measurements that say if you're slightly overweight, it's that you're actually healthier than a lot of people who are in the normal category. Huh. And then when you get to the obese category, that's where it goes up in the big J direction. Sure. So it is a J-shaped curve, a lot of people say. Okay. So... I'm going to put this up front. I'm going to use myself as an example for the calculation on this. Okay. Because the body mass index, it, it, the, the actual calculation for it is um, your body mass divided by the square of your body height. Okay. So when we're, when we're looking at me, when we're looking at me um, all of this is in kilograms and meters, by the way. Okay. So when I last weighed myself, and don't worry, I'll convert it for you. When I was last at the gym, I was, uh, and I weighed myself three days ago, I was about, I, I'm going to round these numbers, not worry about fractions. I was about 232 pounds or roughly 105 kilograms. Uh, that, in weightlifter and powerlifter terms, that would make me a heavyweight. Okay. Um, I'm about 5'6 six or 5'6 six and a half give or take, um, or 1.7 meters in height. So when you run that calculation, my current BMI is about 36. Okay. I want you to remember that number. 36. 36. All right. Now, I'm going to deviate into the history for a little bit. BMI originated with a Belgian astronomer, statistician, and sociologist named Adolf Quetelet. Okay. Yes, we have an Adolf. So, Belgian astronomer, statistician, and sociologist Adolf Quetelet. Uh, I might be pronouncing that wrong. I don't care. <laughs> um, 
He came up with it while studying members of the Scottish and French militaries to discover their distribution of height and weight in the mid-1800s. Okay, so my immediate thought is that almost 200 years ago, I wonder how this metric has evolved or not. <laughs> so, first... Uh, two, two, two points here. First, in fairness to him, uh, he intended the BMI, which he originally named the Quetelet Index, to be about looking for the average man, quote-unquote, a thing with which he was obsessed and convinced was ideal. It was never supposed to have anything to do with health. BMI was never supposed to be like, if you have a high BMI, you're unhealthy or low B Like, it was always supposed to be, these are the ratios of height and weight for these people that I am studying. I am a statistician who is obsessed with finding the perfect averages. Of he had this idea that the average person, the perfect average, was the ideal. I know you're about to get into this, and I cannot let it be ignored that we have a man named Adolf who is obsessed with the quote-unquote ideal man. So the second thing I was going to say, in super non-fairness to him, is that his early work was foundational to the eugenics movement. There it is. And it's not hard to understand why when someone studies young male European soldiers on his quest to find an ideal average for human beings as a whole. This man was also really obsessed with phrenology. Oh, God, of course he was. Which, if you don't know what phrenology is, that's the suggestion that uh, if you study somebody's skull, it says certain things about their brain, and yeah. you can tell their intelligence level, the likelihood that they will be a criminal. He actually literally wrote theories on how criminals have certain physical features. Okay. Like, there's such a thing as a criminal's nose and a criminal's chin. Oh, I wonder what a criminal's nose nose looks like, Alex. I wonder what Adolf Quetelet thinks a criminal's nose looks like. Black people. I was going to say Jewish people. But uh, I, I can't wait for the Behind the Bastards episode on this guy is what there, I'm saying. There, there's a maintenance phase on this, uh, which I can send you, but yes, there should be one, yeah. I think. Um, so th the Quetelet Index just kind of sat there as a statistical thing for a while. Okay. Um, no one was using it for health. Again, like Quetelet himself was sitting here going like, I'm trying to find the ratios closest to an average person. He wasn't thinking about health at all. Now, the primary measurement being used for years in the medical establishment and even the statistical establishment is, um, is a just direct waist to height ratio. So no additional calculations on it. It's just like waist circumference divided by height. Um, I don't remember what that is called. Oh, the Pondural Index. Okay. Um, it has a couple of other names as well, but it was commonly called the Pondural Index. Um, now, the measurement for BMI replaced the Pondural X, uh, Index as a standardized way to assess body fat-related health outcomes after a 1972 paper published by American physiologist and noted asshole Ansel Keys. Uh, what do you know about Ansel Keys? Nothing. I want to know why he's a noted asshole. Um, Ansel Keys became, like, famous as—he's a physiologist, and he's really obsessed with, like, body fat. 
Mm. He thinks that body fat is like an essential crisis in in human existence. And he wrote a lot of really gross fat phobic stuff about how like disgusting he found fat bodies, mm. especially fat children. Gotcha. Um, if you if you think about the entire low fat diet craze, the idea that dietary fat is the thing that's like making people obese. Um, that's all Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys was obsessed with this idea that if you if you eat too much fat, then you're going to fuck up yourself and and all of this. Never mind the fact that if you dip your dietary fat levels under a certain point, you fuck over your hormonal stages. But that never mattered to Ansel Keys. Okay, I'm much more familiar with how Harvey Kellogg was a bastard, but go on. Yes, um, that's like 50 years earlier than Ansel Keys. Ansel oh. Keys kind of took the baton. Okay, all right. Um, so. Keyes suggested BMI, like he renamed it the Body Mass Index. Uh, um, right. And he suggested it as an alternative to the Pondural Index of the time, which again was just a ratio of height to weight. His argument was that it was just slightly more indicative of actual body fat ratios in the seven countries he derived his study from. Don't look at the notes. What do you think those seven countries are? Take a stab in the dark. I'm fucking flabbergasted as to why it's only seven, but let's see. Ansel Keys probably counts America, Canada, London. London's a country? <laughs> the United Kingdom. If I, if I was clever, I would do the, uh, the Animaniac song. <laughs> America, Canada, the UK, Germany, Italy, France, and fucking Spain. I don't know. Okay, so you got two of them. But it's not much better, the actual answer. Okay. The U.S., Finland, the Netherlands, Italy, Yugoslavia, Greece, and Japan. Japan gotta be in there fucking up the ratios. I, I'm about to say, like, one of these things is not like the other, and then I'm like, wait, why am I fucking gatekeep? This is, this is stupid that it's any seven countries. <laughs> no. Those were his seven countries. Talk to me about those. What do those seven countries all kind of... You can put Japan outside of this analysis as an outlier, but what do those seven countries kind of have in common? I, really, though, I would take Yugoslavia as the outlier, and then the rest of them are countries that are like... Uh, have access to an ocean, and maybe there's something there. If you make Japan the outlier, it's the rest of them are fucking white. Yeah. Um, this is just... This is strange and weird, because like... Finland is not the Nordic country I would have picked for this. Yugoslavia is not a country I would have ever thought would be on this thing. And then you just have fucking Japan way over there on the other side of a continent. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I, I sit here and I go, all right, you're studying seven different countries. I'm not mad at the number being seven countries because, you know, there's only so much, so many researchers you can send to so many places. I suppose. But the fact that you pick these seven countries you're missing representation from three different continents yes five of them are all from europe and the population numbers are insanely varied sure i'm sorry the u.s alone like the amount of diversity you'll get in a u.s diet alone the U.S. could physically, literally fit the other five countries inside it like four or five times over. I don't know if it's that much, but a good deal, yes. Yeah. Um, so 
This is where he derives his data to suggest that body mass index is the better way to go than the pondural index. His quote, though, was literally that it that it's if not fully satisfactory, at least as good as any other relative weight index as an indicator of relative obesity. He literally says it might not be better than the pondural index or any other measurement we have. But it's definitely not worse. What was what was going on in, say, Africa during the 70s? Hmm. Was there like a fucking famine epidemic that to this day hasn't really been addressed? I wonder. I, mean, I wonder if there's a DK press book about this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't close the loop too early, but I like where you're going. So... To close out the history portion, following Keyes' endorsement and acknowledging that increasing obesity figures in the U.S. could affect could potentially affect their bottom line, keep in mind this is the early 70s, and obesity numbers are rising. Uh, that, is, that is legitimate. Yeah. The average weight and the average body fat levels of the average American are going up. The BMI, based on these endorsements, was officially adopted by... The insurance companies. Oh, God. As a means to assess coverage risk. And when the insurance companies made that shift, the medical field followed suit. The shred of, of hope. And I already knew this was shady. The shred of hope in this thing as like a concept just got immolated by a flamethrower the second you said insurance companies. Exactly. And obviously insurance companies at the time were talking about how, you know, it's now backed by, you know, a really well-respected researcher mm. who's, used, who's done, you know, extensive research into it. And you know what? It's just easy to do. So we're going to use this as a metric for assessing insurance rates. So what, of course, ends up happening? We start taking people's BMI. And the insurance companies start using it as a way to go, all right, your BMI is this, so your insurance rates are higher. Yeah. Your BMI is this, so we're just going to not insure you at all. Your BMI is this, so we're going to count any medical issue you have as a pre-existing thing because your BMI was this, and you were going to have that heart attack eventually. And again, the medical field, which is, of course, tied into the insurance companies, follows suit. Sure. So this now becomes a thing that is... Also, and I think I would argue this is more damaging. It is now taught in med schools mm. as a valid and useful metric. It's now being used by medical researchers as a way to track the viability of weight loss interventions, of exercise interventions, of prescription drugs, of all of these things. And they're using it as a measurement of health outcomes. Yeah. Real real quick, because I know you're about to turn the page into really what's going on here. Talking about this, for some reason, makes me think of an episode of the cartoon Doug. Okay. Feels like a very classic poll for us. There's an episode of Doug, which in retrospect is very uh, weird in the 90s way towards this issue. But it's an episode where Doug is worried that he is overweight. Mm-hmm. 
and spends the whole episode freaking out about this and trying to do something about it. And he talks to two of the more, like, random B characters. Mr. Dink and, uh... No, no, no. It was two of the high... Two of his classmates. Okay. I just remember one of them had purple skin. The other one had green skin. Um, and he's talking to them about how, like, he thinks he's he's overweight and he's worried. And they are two, like, wider drawn characters. And I remember one of them just goes, like... Well, I mean, I'm just stout. And the other one goes, yeah, I'm big boned. And Doug's like, well, what about me? And they go, well, Doug, I think you're fat. We're not fat, Doug. I'm big boned. And I'm stout. Well, then what am I? Husky? For some reason, this is coming to mind. I'm going to dare you to find a clip of this. And if you can't, just find a clip of Doug singing with his banjo. Fair enough. All right. So why I hate BMI. Um, listen, okay, up front, from basically Keyes' time, yeah. there have been criticisms of BMI. You know, Quetelet and Keyes both used disgustingly limited sample groups. Sure. Which yeah. we've already touched on. Horrifyingly. And this has borne out as the World Health Organization and a huge percentage of the medical establishment have had to acknowledge that BMI ranges need to be modified for Asian, Black, and Native populations when actually tabulating for things like blood pressure, cholesterol, and actual body fat levels. A refrain you'll frequently hear is, BMI doesn't work for Black people. Yeah. Not only does BMI not work for black people, it doesn't work for Hispanic people, it doesn't work for Native American people. It's funny, it doesn't work for Asian people in the opposite direction. No, yeah. Because it overestimates risk factors for um, the first three populations I mentioned, and it underestimates them for Asians. Because their only metric for Asians is Japan, the country... Famous for its mostly fish diet. Yeah. Another thing that Ansel Keys was a big proponent of, and, and I actually don't hate this overall, but he was the big proponent of the Mediterranean diet. Sure. Yeah, which is the one where it's like, eat a whole bunch of plants, eat like a whole shitload of fish, uh, whole grains, and put olive oil on stuff. Like, that was his whole thing. No. Um, anyway. This is to say nothing of the fact that BMI overshoots for tall people, undershoots for short people, and is wholly incapable of accounting for those with more muscle mass, denser bones, or changes in height due to age. Now, when it's applied to children, they arbitrarily have decided to do it based on population percentiles. So you, you were talking to me at the intro to this that, like, from age 11 onward, you use BMI. That's not quite accurate. From age 2 to 20, you're underweight if you're in the fifth percentile of people for your sex and age. Let me finish. I'm going to scream. You're overweight if you're in the 85th percentile, and you're obese if you're in the 95th percentile. That's... For kids the same age and sex. That is the age range in which your entire fucking body changes randomly. So that's the reason why we're willing to accept changing bodies in children without measuring anything else. But we're not willing to do it for adults. There is actually an argument that that metric for... It's not a good argument. It's not a good system. It's just a slightly less bad system. But if we applied that same metric to adults where we said, you're underweight if you're in the bottom 
You're overweight if you're in the top 15% and you're obese if you're in the top 5%. There might actually be an argument for you. Again, it's not great because it doesn't handle the right. racial issues. It, 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 it slightly accounts for race and for the height differences because you function with a larger sample size. But it's still not a great metric for health sure. because it doesn't tell you anything about the individual. And that's one of the most common things about like the most some, some of the most generous adjudications of BMI are that it's OK at assessing factors for populations, but it's dog shit for individuals. Fair. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm upset now. Yeah. <laughs> so Keys loved BMI because it was easy to measure and calculate. Which is also why insurance companies love it. They've been open about this. Sure. It's, they, they, tr they say it's an advantage. They go, BMI is an easy way for you to track your progress or your health factors. But it's a piss poor measurement for health. Every member of the MBA is morbidly obese by BMI. The fuck? Every single member. Because if you're particularly tall, that fucks with your number. Gotcha. An osteoporotic woman who loses bone density and muscle mass, who is literally wasting away, would slide closer to a healthy BMI if she started in the overweight or obese category. Yeah, okay, I see what's happening. Okay. Like, okay, there's a running, there, there's a running joke. You even mentioned it with your Doug episode reference, the big boned thing. What, what does Eric Cartman say every time someone calls him fat in South Park? I'm hey, not, I'm not fat, I'm a bone. Exactly. Here's the thing. We, we, we call that a giant joke. We treat it like a giant joke. Guess what? It actually kind of happens. Some people just have denser bones. Like, this is... And, and, and it's funny because this was the thing that I thought about a lot. My dad used to talk about how just... He didn't say it was big bones. He said we had strong bones. Mm. On his side of the family, it's very dense bones. And there are stories of people in my family going through shit that really should have broken a bone in a place or two. And it just doesn't. Mm. You know, when I got into scraps, something I got really good at doing was headbutting people. Because the headbutts didn't hurt me. But they hurt other people. Interesting. Strong bones. It is a thing. It, and, and you know what? You can actually measure this if you actually go to a doctor's office and take a bone density test. You can also measure it if you just headbutt a bunch of people. Yes, this is also true. <laughs> I don't recommend doing it in the osteoporosis ward at the hospital. <sighs> but yeah, you, but, but, but you know what it takes to get a bone density scan? You got to sit in a machine for a good hour and a half while they just measure your bone density. It's also a very expensive test. Mm, sure. So it's the kind of thing we do on professional athletes. It's the kind of thing we do for well-off, well-insured, um, middle, middle and upper class women who are at risk for osteoporosis. What it about the other ones that are at risk for osteoporosis? Do they get this? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but that's the point. It's like, I'm not fat, I'm big boned as a giant joke, but I have a high BMI and dense bones. That shit matters. Sure. That shit is a factor. Bone, guess what? Bone is heavy. We People always talk about how muscle is heavier than fat. Bone is heavier than both of them, motherfucker. That's a good point. 
Back to me. I have a BMI of 36 and a body fat percentage somewhere around 25%. That is, I, I went through my old training journals for this episode. That is around um, March of 2016. So a little less than six and a half years ago from the time that we're recording, or seven and a half years ago from the time that we are recording this episode. Um, I weighed 187 pounds and was about 20% body fat. So that's five more percentage points than where I was in 2016. If you do the math, I put on about 20 pounds of fat and about 25 pounds of muscle mass in that time. Now, there is, for someone who is very genetically normal, that's actually pretty standard as you gain your weight. Like, it's not unusual to, you always want to gain a little more muscle than you will fat. Sure. And anyone who has tried to seriously gain muscle, something you have to understand is you are going to gain some fat along with it. That's just how bodies work. Mm -hmm. Is the ratio ideal? No, it probably would have been more ideal if I'd been able to put on like, 15 pounds of fat and 30 pounds of muscle, but okay, here we are. So I put on 20 pounds of fat and 25 pounds of muscle. Am I overweight? Sure, a little. If you use body fat as a percentage for males, if you're 20, like your normal range that people will just, what men will normally be in naturally without any need for any kind of intervention, um, or often without training is somewhere between 10 and 20%. Very naturally thin people usually sit around 10. Naturally larger people will sit around 20. Um, so I'm about 25%. I'm a little bit overweight. Sure. Am I obese? Quote unquote. I don't even like the term obese. It's got sure. its own problems. But sure. for the purposes of this, that's the term BMI uses. So that's what I'll use. Only according to BMI which just sees 55 pounds of weight gain and nothing else. When I look at my actual abilities, I can lift a couple of times more than what I was lifting there when I was tracking in 2016. Like, when I say a couple of times, I mean my squat is almost two and a half times higher. My deadlift is like two and three quarter times higher. To put this in different context, you routinely will lift any one of our friends in a giant bear hug and like hold them up and lift them above their feet and like hold them there for a minute. Several people of which are taller and bigger than either of us. Yes, I am significantly stronger. Now, in 2016, my cardio was a little bit better. Like, I won't lie about that. I, I used to do a lot of treadmill and, like, I used to run on a bridge in New Jersey at the time. Like, sure. So my cardio was a little bit better than it is now. It's not that I don't have good cardio now. Like, I walk a lot. I don't run as much. If I bumped my cardio, if I spent, you know, one or two months working on my cardio, though, I could probably get to about where I was back then. So, you know, if you're going to objectively look at my physicality, um, I'm definitely stronger. I'm about as flexible and mobile as I was back then. My cardio is a little shittier, but, you know, again, two months of focus on that, and I'd be roughly about where I was. Maybe I'd lose a few pounds on my lifts as I was doing that, 
but I would be roughly as quote unquote in shape as I was. Sure. I'd still have a little bit more body fat. I'd still have a little bit more muscle mass, quote unquote, a little bit. More than 20 pounds in seven years is not awful, honestly. And that's sustained. That's not like I gained it all very, very quickly. I gained it over a period of time. Yeah. But again, according to BMI, which just sees 55 pounds of weight gain and nothing else, I am obese at a BMI of 36. And the problem is that is it's not just that that is a standard of one metric. That is the standard used for medicine and insurance. Right. And I am really irritated by it. And unfortunately, the solutions are frustrating. Getting your body fat measured via DEXA scans or water displacement, not using fucking calipers, which are really inaccurate unless you know what you're doing, um, to measure your actual body fat percentages. Getting blood work on a regular basis. Regularly testing your strength, your endurance, and your mobility by engaging in physical activity that uses and trains them all. Mm. Monitoring your sleep and libido and energy levels. All of these are tremendous pains in the ass. And every one of them will do more for assessing your health outcomes than a goddamn formula based on your height and weight. So we use BMI because it's easy. But it tells you goddamn nothing. The thing, and, and, and I feel like this is a recurring mantra on, on the podcast. The easy thing is actually a terrible thing. The way that you fix these issues is to do the hard, yeah. pain in the ass, difficult, annoying, exhausting thing. I don't know. I think maybe just if there's an idea for a scientific thing that was created by a eugenicist who didn't even intend for it to be a medical thing, maybe we don't do that. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I remember... Um, my first job out of college, I worked for Pepsi, uh, which while we're talking about health and wellness is just hilarious. Right. But they had a health program where they brought in nurses to like talk to us about health shit. And I remember that was the first time I ever had my BMI taken. Oh, really? Interesting. That, that was the very first time where I ever had a medical professor. Because I didn't have a doctor. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You kidding? I'm Hispanic. We didn't go to the doctor. <laughs> um but I had, and I remember I had this nurse like measure my waist and my height and go, okay, you're overweight. Like she measured my waist, she measured my height, she measured my um, body fat. I thought waist measurements were somehow part of this. Mm. Super not, super not even a little bit. Gotcha. Um, but she was like, yeah, no, you have an overweight BMI. And I'm sitting here like, I'm 22 and I've been lifting weights, or I'm 23 and I've been lifting weights for a year. No. <laughs> Fair. Like, no. Valid. I'm, I'm not. Oh, what are you talking about that I'm overweight? And and that was the first time where I was just like, let me look into this BMI. And I went, oh, BMI is fucking bullshit. And yet, again, it is a th like it's on my medical records right now. Every time I go get my blood work done, there's my BMI listed right there. Right. And I try and pick doctors who don't think about BMI very much, who care more about my blood work numbers. Not all of us have that. If you have a medical professional who is telling you about talking a lot about your BMI, you should probably look into a different medical professional or at least tell them, hey, there's a whole bunch of problems with BMI. 
And you don't have to look far. I don't even need to put resources in this episode. You don't have to look far. You can literally Google this shit. The World Health Organization doesn't even really abide by BMI significantly. They use it because it's a global standard. They have it there, but it's really not nearly as useful. So this is my rant. This is me. And, and this is me yelling at a cloud. I know that it is. It is, but I'll say this feels... Maybe it's because it's a personal thing and not a societal thing. This does feel like something a little more attainable to actually do something about than a lot of the stuff we scream at clouds over. I mean, maybe. It's, it's again, like, maybe one day the technology will come out and it'll be affordable. And, like, you can get... Okay, they sell um, digital weight scales that like if you stand on them they're supposed to measure your body fat percentage mm. and they're woefully inaccurate sure how, whole, could, how could they not be yeah like the whole idea is like it's supposed to, I, don't, I don't even know how they properly work i know one of the things in the instructions for them because i had a friend who had one like the instructions say that um you should be careful how much that, that your water consumption is the same every time you use it so, like, they always recommend do it, like, first thing in the morning before you've had anything to eat or drink. Yeah. Because they're like, if you have too much water, it'll give you an inaccurate measurement. But sure. if you have too little water, it'll give you an inaccurate measurement. The point is, it's just fucking inaccurate. The way you measure body fat percentages is to get yourself fucking scanned in a giant machine. Kind of like getting your bone density measured. Yeah. Like... And that's just an expensive pain in the ass. Maybe one day we'll have, you know, the Star Trek device that can... You can just put like a machine up against your body or something and it'll actually give you an accurate measurement. But until we have that and it's cheap and as affordable as say the $10 bathroom scale that you can buy at CVS. Sure. I don't know that we're going to see something that's actually going to be useful in this realm. No, that's fair, but I'd like to think we were able to shed some light on this issue for people who maybe didn't know about it. I, Even I, who knew BMI is a crock of shit, I, I had no idea how big of a crock of shit. How big of a racist crock of how shit. How big of a racist crock of shit <laughs> it was until we talked about it. So I, I, I appreciate what we've done here today, for sure. Yeah, and we appreciate you, our lovely audience, for sitting here as we um, expound on how wonderful visual encyclopedias are and how much we fucking hate BMI. Absolutely. With that said, uh, on the next episode, we are going to go back to our um, our lovely questions segment, and we're gonna you know talk about whatever we can find. We're always comfortable to go look at the internet's uh, relationship questions, but we always prefer to take your relationship questions, dear listeners. So if you have any, you can send those into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com and we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I would say Stitcher, but Stitcher's actually going away. Oh. Um, so Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms except Stitcher. Um, <laughs> follow the show. We, we um, you know, give us a rating. We're told that it helps people find the podcast. You can also still follow us on Twitter as long as Twitter's still around at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Maybe we should put like 
the podcast on some of the other Twitter clones and see if that means anything uh, idea. or helps in some way. For however long Twitter's still around, you can uh, reach out to us there, send us your questions, get our commentary on uh, previous topics, however they come up, and, you know, check us out. Absolutely. You can find me, Andy Bowell, still on Twitter at JovoCop2113. You can also follow my other account, Andy's underscore minis, where I post about whatever stuff I'm painting in the Warhammer hobby sense. And you can find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Everywhere you can find this show. As time of recording, our last one was Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Which feels... Topical to the BMI one, if you know the script to that movie. Yeah, yeah. all right. You can, I, I mean, I guess you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok and LieChess, but I'm not on those a whole lot. Uh, I am more on Instagram and chess.com, but all of the handles are A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. I don't know if I'm going to get a Threads or a Mastodon or a Blue Sky or any of those things. I think I might just be kind of playing wait and see and see how many of them actually survive. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but in any case, we will survive and you will survive. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as ever, please tell your enemies. Tell your enemies.